Hello and welcome to the NHRA Insider Podcast with Brian Loans. The fans have won already. What a spectacular week of competition we have seen. On this episode, the sport that's all about going fast has come to a stop and we're going to talk about it. And there is not a happier human being on planet Earth than the woman in that pro stock car. Historian Brett Kepner and Tony Pedragon join me this week. Goodbye, Snake, and hello, Ace! This is the NHRA Insider. And the wildest day in the history of this category is finally complete. Well, hello and welcome everybody to the NHRA Insider Podcast. For those of you that are picking this up on video, it's the first time we've ever tried this experiment. Normally, I am just here with only myself and this microphone. So now we're inviting you into Podcast Central as the whole world is uh, changing around us seemingly here over the last couple of weeks and certainly over the last couple of days in the world of NHRA racing. So as I mentioned in the open, um, this is a sport that's about going fast. This is a sport about going as quickly as you can in a straight line. And right now it is a sport like all other sports that have come to a complete stop. And the two guests I have on the show are Tony Pedragon and Brett Kepner. And the reason for Tony and Brett, pretty simple. For Tony, it's because he was a racer back in 2001 when the September 11th disaster terrorist attack happened. So when that happened, everything stopped, much like it has done so far now. Now, it may not have had the same reasoning, but it did have the same effect. Everything came to a grinding halt immediately in the world of sports and certainly in the world of drag racing. Now, for Brett Kepner's entree into this show, Brett's been on before, and he's a great historian and a friend of mine. And he's a guy who knows a lot of history about early auto racing. And so we're actually going to talk to Brett about the Spanish flu. We're going to talk to him about what happened in 1918 when the Spanish influenza uh, came to America and had a lot of the same style of effects as the coronavirus has had on our society right now. Granted, Spanish flu uh, had a higher death toll. We're going to talk about all that stuff. But the Spanish flu by the time they got it contained, had the same effect on auto racing as coronavirus has had in 2020, meaning that it brought it to a stop. So to go back to the news that has happened in the world of NHRA drag racing this week, series officials announced that the series is on hold until April. Um, Basically, that means they're intending on running the Spring Nationals in Houston. The intention is to start that race on time on April 17th. Of course, that intention has to line up with a lot of other factors. Will the local and federal governments be allowing large gatherings at that point? Um, Will the area be good? Will the track operator be ready to have the race in terms of his staff and in terms of his facility that has been uh, and will be potentially closed for a while because of the uh, limitations on gatherings. There's a lot of things that have to line up for this to happen, and I'm certainly hoping it does. I'd like to see drag racing get back on its feet and rolling as quickly as possible, not only because I want to get to the races, but because there's a lot of people that make their living out there uh, as vendors, as people involved in the sport. You know, We tend to look at this in a small window picture. We look at it as the racers and the teams, but Uh, When cars aren't being run, it means that pistons and pieces aren't being used. The trickles down through the manufacturers there. When we're not having events, it means that catering vendors, uh, food vendors, um, all the types of people that make their living as support, if you will, not just for drag racing, but for any event, it means that those people are uh, those people are out of work and out of luck as well. So we are in a very interesting time right now, one that um, 
again, other than the, what we're going to talk about with Tony Pedragon, I certainly can't remember. There were times in drag racing where negative things like gas crunches and energy crises hit that certainly put a hampering uh, or a damper, I should say, on the crowds, on the size of events, on situations of that nature. But uh, in terms of my lifetime and my life in motorsports, have never, ever had a kind of a hard stop situation like this. And make no mistake, um, NHRA, uh, the media side of things, the social media side of things, uh, doofuses like me who make this NHRA Insider podcast, we're going to keep cranking it for you over the next couple of weeks. We're not just going to, you know, lay in bed or stare out the windows. We want to keep busy. We want to keep active. We want to keep people informed, not just as a news of the day, but also of kind of what everybody in this sport's doing right now. Are the teams going to work right now? John Kernan's in Indiana uh, and the Indianapolis Bureau, and John's going to be turning in reports from a lot of the teams, going to talk about what their response has been, um, what's happening inside shops. You know, it's going to be... it's going to be very, very interesting, and you know, ultimately, my my hope, ultimately, my um, how should you say, cheery demeanor, my positive outlook, says that when this clears up, and I don't know when that's going to be, hope sooner rather than later, that we're going to bounce back pretty hard. Um, I don't, uh, I don't, quote, I don't knock on wood, see you know a massive long-term effect here. There are certainly going to be bumps in the road. There's going to be hiccups or whatever when we get back going again. But once we start rolling, and I, I think this goes across the, the society, once we start rolling again, people are going to be rolling pretty hard. Um, a lot of you listening may be uh, working from home. A lot of you listening may have kids where school systems have been closed down. That's pretty much coast to coast at this point. Schools have been let out for varying amounts of time uh, here in the the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, where I live, the kids are going to be uh, shut down of school basically until the uh, last week in April, somewhere in that time frame. So uh, they may be on about the same length of break that drag racing is on right now. And uh, a lot of interesting things happening with that. We see people doing things electronically that they wouldn't have normally been doing electronically. Kids getting schoolwork that way. College classes being taken that way. And for us, on the media side of things, you're going to see um, an increased amount of content. You're going to see an increased amount of work. You're going to see a lot of people with their nose to the grindstone to make it happen. And again, the idea here is to keep people safe. You know, The idea here is not to expose a bunch of people to this thing that don't need to be exposed to it unnecessarily. Not going to get down into the trenches because I'm not a doctor. I'm not going to get down into the trenches of um, you know, what is and what isn't uh, the right way to do things. But I am going to say that, hey, I'm, I'm not the guy making the decisions. I, I abide by the decisions and we're going to make the best out of it. What's going on with the Denso Spark Plugs 4 Wide Nationals? What's going on with the rest of the Gator Nationals? Two questions everybody has asked. And the answer is postponement, not cancellation right now, postponement. That means that the NHRA is working with the track operators, they're working with the officials in the area, working on to find some alternate dates to move those races to. Um, You know, if you're a thinking person, if you're somebody that is able to apply logic to everyday situations, which I do realize in this time of the of the world, this is becoming an ever more uh, lost art. But if you can look at a calendar, from the months of May through, oh, I don't know, November, you will see that there are a few open holes in there, a couple of weeks that uh, things could happen, things could be inserted, things could be uh, added, if not moved around. So I'm not going to make any predictions of when that will happen or how it will happen because 
ultimately it all depends on when we are allowed to have mass gatherings again, when we're allowed to have major events again, and that'll uh, that'll really dictate kind of the time frame there. But the Gator Nationals, the professional side of it from factory stock all the way through the alcohol classes, all the way through the pro categories, um, is planned on being rescheduled. And the entire Denzo Four Wide Nationals in Vegas, also the plan, the intention of NHRA officials is to reschedule those races. I made a bit of a video address that went out on NHRA social media and on NHRA.com and .tv the other day um, explaining some of that. But if you didn't see it, um, I think it's better to be repetitive in these situations than not. So um, that's the story there. The events, the schedule, the amount of events, the plan is to maintain 24 of those and do what needs to be done to get to get creative with the scheduling in terms of uh, in terms of how that stuff all gets handled. So let's talk a little bit about the first two races before we get Tony Pedregon on the horn. Obviously, we see Doug Coletta handle his business in Pomona. Then we see Steve Torrance come roaring back in Phoenix and handle his business. We see Matt Hagen with a very fast race car, but we see Jack Beckman as a dominant force. We were all kind of, I don't want to say we were robbed, but we were denied the chance to see the debut of the Pro Mod category on time in Gainesville, deny the ability to see the start of the Pro Stock motorcycle season on time in Gainesville. Those uh, two categories definitely chomping at the bit. Personally, I think Matt Smith's going to be a huge factor this year. Not that he always isn't, but I feel like he tasted that championship last year in Pomona. He tasted it, and he just couldn't pull it off uh, as Gianna Salinas was having uh, the single most incredible day I've ever seen anybody have at the drag strip, no matter what category or class she was there doing it, ultimately wins the race. And Matt Smith was one of the people that uh, she victimized out there. Pro Modified, if there is a winner of a race that didn't happen yet in the form of the Gator Nationals, it has to be Stevie Fast Jackson. The guy piles his car up the weekend before the race. He's going to switch into a nitrous car that Jeffrey Parker was going to drive. And, you know, myself and a lot of other people, confident in our knowledge of this guy, confident in our knowledge of how good he is, um, is that he is going to be a factor in that nitrous car. But he has been running the blower car. He's a champion of the blower car. They planned on running the blower car, and he destroys the thing effectively down in Orlando at the World Door Slammer Nationals the weekend before Gainesville. No one was happy about this race being postponed except for one guy, and I can tell you that he'd never admit it in public, but Stevie Fast Jackson, when the word came out that they would not be racing that weekend, probably breathed a pretty deep sigh of relief and other competitors an even deeper sigh of frustration because that is a situation where you got a guy who's that good and you can get him down on the mat and you can kind of put the pressure on him. He can get a slow start. Maybe he stumbles in the nitrous car. Maybe that knocks him off his perch, but that wasn't to be. So Stevie Fast Jackson... We'll be back. By the time we get racing again, Stevie Fast Jackson will have his blower car back, and I can completely, completely believe he will be in that thing once the NHRA season starts anew and once the NHRA Pro Mod season kicks off um, for its 12-race campaign. So I'll tell you what, let's get our first guest on the phone. I'm going to be calling our pal, your friend and mine, Mr. Tony Pedragon, as uh, Tony has been my right-hand man in the booth now for a couple of seasons and again we're going to talk to tony about interruptions in the nhra schedule over the course of his career totally pro you're going to get the ringing noise and everything hey tony pedragon how you doing man welcome back to the nhra insider podcast how's things going in indiana man you quiet there or what yeah it was quiet i'm listening to Stephen a argue with michael Irvin right now 
well, that's <laughs> we got with uh, sports. We, got, we just got to we got to listen. That's what we're going to do. We're going to try to keep everyone busy, occupied. Yeah, no, it's crazy, man. It's and everybody's in kind of the same boat. I think it's interesting to see how how things are shaking out. Now, are you are your kids still in school or not? My kids, they have uh, they have closed the school systems down for about a month here in the Boston area. What about you? Well, they've been out of school since uh, actually starting this week. However, my their mother and I made the decision to take them out. Um, when I thought about it, it wasn't a question of, of uh, if, it was a question of when somebody in their school system came up with this virus. And of course, my 11-year-old, he's uh, a high risk because he has a, a little breathing disorder. Gotcha. Uh, so we've been printing off a lot of homework and uh, just trying to keep them. You know, it's funny. They always thought they wanted to be homeschooled. And uh, right. now they're homeschooled. They- <laughs> Probably can't wait to get back to school. It's funny how that. <laughs> yeah, it is funny how that works. So, man, the reason I want to talk to you today is, uh, you know, I'm doing this show basically about how the season has stopped. And the last time I can ever remember something of a stoppage in NHRA drag racing was just after the September 11th terrorist attacks. You were racing at that point, and I guess I want to pick your brain a little bit about what happened then. Obviously, everything in the country stopped for a period of time, but. It was later in the season. I think it was right around Maple Grove when that whole thing went down. So uh, if you can bring us back to 01, kind of what was what was the scene then? Well, Brian, I was driving for Force, you know, back in 2001. And, uh, you know, I live in Indianapolis now. I have for the last 13, 14 years. Uh, I was living in California in 01. And, of course, you know, the time difference, it was it was pretty early in the morning. I remember waking up. I always, you know, used to fall asleep with the TV on and just, like, trying to clear my eyes and look at the news and you know i just saw these images you know of course of the you know the planes going into the twin towers and and it was just you know kind of like a dream but you know kind of became a reality when you snap out of it real quick but um i think it was on a tuesday if i'm not mistaken so i was scheduled to travel like like most like most racers and i think fans everyone was kind of gearing up for the weekend and it just came to a sudden stop because of what happened but um, you know, I think, I think what happens in, in a lot of ways, like we are right now, we're just fixated on the news. Um, and, and I think we can get a little too much of, of what we're looking at and listening to now, uh, versus then, you know, I think the, you know, of course the scenarios were different. So, um, it, it was, it was a scary time and it was a very emotional time. Even I had some very close friends that had sponsored me. He and his wife were in New York and, uh, they couldn't get a flight out of anywhere. They were we were communicating because they could only get a car and, and drive. Um, they were closer to Pennsylvania, actually. But, you know, it just it's it was one of those things that you feel so helpless, uh, like like in a lot of ways we do right now. There's there's some things we can do, but, you know, it's just, it's just a helpless feeling. We can sit and watch and try to inform ourselves and and. Um, you know, it's a little bit of a numbing feeling. Yeah, it is. It's uh, it's a definitely an interesting thing that you know. It's a, obviously a reminder that uh, you know, it, it, everything has something bigger than it out there that can that can put it kind of stopped in its tracks. And it's an interesting situation to be in. Uh, like you said, you live in Indiana, and I know you you kind of every once in a while, like a doctor, make the rounds down there and uh, down by the uh, the t- the sheet the shops and what the teams are doing. If you can give us a little insight about anything you've seen or heard or what's cruising his guys doing, kind of what's the program? Are going to put me right <laughs> put me right in the in the cell? Um, but you know, to be honest with you, good to go back to my cough. I I came down with some kind of flu at the Winter Nationals. I I don't know if exactly if it was when I was traveling through the airport or when I actually got to the track. But it's like I I haven't been able to <laughs> this cough, but it's 
it's uh, it's just kind of lingering. But you know, I think uh, yeah, it's it's quite a bit different than the virus because you know you still have the cold season, the flu season. My daughter was sick, but she had the sniffles, and you know, a couple of days she you know she's back to normal. So um, I think the opportunity for a lot of teams here in in the Brownsburg area is for them to start to go through some things that they typically can't you know can't go through the the work never ends there's there's never um a, a really a time it may appear that there is that you know they want to time off but that's the balance of not overworking them um so if the race cars are ready they can they can really go through you know their clutch inventory their cylinder heads but after all the work on the race cars done and and things are cleaned and and prep for a hopefully Houston, which will be the next event, at least at this point. Right. Um, you know, there's the maintenance on the rigs. You know, we, we, we all documented the story about caps and what happened to their rig. And it may have been a tire. It might've been the radials, you know, hitting the inside that, you know, created some sparks. Um, and you know, I read up, uh, it was one of the IndyCar trailers. I think it's happened to NASCAR. So the maintenance on the rigs and, on average, for most of the bigger teams, there's two units that go over the road, and that's not including their support vehicle. But you right. have a, a race rig and race hauler, and then you have what they would call a tech or a support trailer. So you know there's uh, there's axle grease, there's oil, there's tires, all this maintenance, and I think it's a, it's an opportunity for a lot of teams just to catch up on whatever they feel that those those areas they miss in between this tough NHRA schedule that they're able to do. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's one of those things too, like once we get going again, um, and like you and I both hope it's sooner rather than later, but once we get going again, you're not going to have a lot of excuses in terms of not being prepared. Right. I mean, it's like, you know, you can't roll into the next race and kind of be sloppy because you had time. Well, like whether it's maintaining the trucks, whether it's going through and, and doing more kind of finite maintenance or inspection on parts you've ever normally done at this point in the season. Um, and, and even us, no one's going to have time. No one's going to have an excuse to be underprepared or not ready <laughs> when the, uh, when the rubber meets the road and what we intend to be Houston. Yeah, you know, Brian, and you're 100% right. I, I can go back to when I was racing. Uh, I'll go back to 2015, the last year I raced, because the balance for me was trying to do a lot with very little, you know, not having, uh, you know, 11 engines in your trailer, in your inventory, like some of the bigger teams have. Um, 8 to 10, 8 to 12 engines, uh, all these uh, maybe 10 to 12 sets of cylinder heads that are ready to bolt on the car. I mean, they they're complete with valves and springs and keepers and, and the fuel systems of fuel nozzles, fuel rails, everything that's needed. So you can literally, uh, uh, put a head gasket on the block, torque the head down and this car's ready to race. And I do remember a lot of times when you're able to put the best parts on it and, and you're able to, you know, to pay attention, take your time and do it, the car will go out and perform. It's, it's not long after that in between the quick turnarounds and, the rush uh, and the madness between, you know, from one race to the next, that, that's when things start to get a little tougher, a little hectic. But to your point, they should come out swinging. And it's it's a shame because I think the March, or rather the, um, the Gainesville, the Gator Nationals were really shaping up to be, uh, it just, it seemed like one that was bigger and better. I don't know if it was the, the low, mid to low 80 degree forecast. There was a lot of new teams coming out. There were a lot of teams that had some momentum. So it'll be interesting to see how that changes because it's no longer going to go to Gainesville. It's going to go to Houston and then more than likely to Charlotte. And then there's some makeup dates in between. But, um, 
you know, it, it changes. But the good teams, the good teams adapt. Yeah, and uh, I'm not going to name any names at this point, but in, in talking to um, a funny car <clears throat> racer, a funny car team person yesterday, um, they're actually adding races that they weren't planning on running, and they're talking about, you know, if, uh, if like, some suspect – that some weekends in May are filled up with events that we were unable to run in April that they're planning on on hitting events that they wouldn't have run before. So it is going to have an effect. Um, you know, honestly, Mike Salinas looks like some sort of a, a, a genius. He looks like Nostradamus right now for, <laughs> for not starting <laughs> the season until Houston because we're thinking, man, this guy's this guy's killing himself. He's only he's going to miss five races. Well, well, it turns out basically he's going to miss two. Um, if if we do get started in Houston, it's going to miss two and. If we don't get Houston off like we planned, maybe it's one or less. So it's crazy, you know? Well, he's looking like quite the genius, but there's a flip side to that, Brian. And the flip side is when you look at the top 10 and the potential of him making the top 10, yeah. uh, it's not going to be easy. Uh, you know, I think one could argue that it's going to be tough. They're really going to have to not get to second round semifinals. They're going to have to win some races. And I think the team knows it. I, I, I've been around, uh, you know, the shop a little bit. And, and I know they're counting points. They're looking at teams. They're trying to calculate what they have to do. And, and this is a very, a very calculated team, uh, and, and I think the expectations are high. But it really makes you wonder, is the rust going to affect them? It didn't affect the Steve Torrance, but he only sat out one race. And this is a driver that had won the championship, that had gone into late rounds, won Vegas, gone into late rounds at Pomona. That's really not the case with Salinas, but – you know, the, the the ace that he has in his back pocket is Alan Johnson. Not just Alan, but it's the team. It's Brian Hughes, uh, it's a very polished team. And uh, it, it's just going to be interesting because you have Terry McMillan that's running so well. You have Scott Palmer. You know it's just a matter of time before they jump up and start running. And um, you've got uh, uh, Justin Ashley, uh, yeah. Austin Park. You, you've got cars that you really didn't have to contend with last year. So they're looking at, uh, at their chances. Yeah, they are, and uh, I guess you, like me, like the rest of us, going to try to keep ourselves busy on on making some co- content and doing some stuff. I know John Kernan's uh, going to be out shooting a whole load of stuff with uh, the NHRA on Fox, uh, Indiana Bureau out there visiting teams, and I don't know if he's going to be you know wearing a Tyvek suit when he goes into their operations or what, but he's, <laughs> he's going to be taking safety precautions when he does his report, so I'm sure we'll see your face popping in on some of that stuff as well. Brian, had we gone to Gainesville, I was very well prepared to bring my warm-up mask out of retirement. <laughs> and, and, it, and this this isn't no cupcake little piece of toilet paper over your mouth. This is a full face, two filters, you know, full on uh, in the trenches. And I was just going to be interesting. I know uh, one of the one of our fellow racers, uh, Norm Grazy, used to uh, travel, and and I don't know. What, why he did it, uh, what the rationale behind it was. But I would see him at the Phoenix airport when we were uh, coming and going from the Phoenix race. And, and it's quite the sight to see this, you know, guerrilla warfare guy. And and my my son, he said, Dad, you should just wear He's got a Tyvek suit. He offered it to me. So it was going to be interesting. But, Brian, you know, it, it, this the conversation between you and I, it made me think of something. You know, it made me think of, of all of the challenging times and moments. You know, you talk about racers like, like Blaine Johnson and uh, Eric Medlin, you know, because of Gainesville and Scott and, and even Daryl Russell and all the racers. But but when it goes beyond that, you think of, of not just the 9-11, uh, there was the recession in 07 and 08, and, and a lot of businesses, a lot of companies, it didn't. It, it's never really gotten back to what it was. 
Um, you know, so nobody comes out unscathed, you know, and I think this is one of those challenging times for us that, you know, that um, we, it, it gives us not just an opportunity to do things, whether it's at home or tidy up or on your business or the, for, for the racing teams, looking at, at how they're running their programs, but a lot of them will come out better. But, um, it, it, you know, I, it, I went back and I looked at, uh, at Columbine, you know, when that happened and then we went to Denver and, and one of the things that to me was, it's very emotional. It's very touching. I, I got to the final, I, I think I was racing Baysmore, Baysmore caps, but they had some of those students come to the race. And I, I think it was several months after, you know, that, that tragedy at Columbine, but they had some of the students there. And, and one of these days I'd really like to find out who it was. I've never really looked into it, but you know, we pulled underneath the tower, um, for the final. And when I used to get dressed and get my gear on, I put my helmet on and I, I really didn't, you know, I didn't high five. I, I, I communicated with my team, but you know, I always tried to focus yeah, on the way lock it down. That, yeah. that I did. So I looked down and I, I'll never forget when I, I used to get my helmet on in my tow vehicle and I stepped out of it and I was looking down because I knew exactly where I had to go. Right. I would just try to step over that toe strap. And, and there was a kid that was blocking the way and he couldn't move. And all I could see, cause I was looking down was this cast and these crutches. And I, I remembered after that it was these, you know, these students from Columbine and I never looked up, but I gave this kid a hug and I got in the car and I won the race. So that's one of those moments that when I look back at my yeah. career, you know, that was just one of those neat things, but you know, Hey, the challenges are always there, whether it's somebody close to us or a fellow racer, you know, somebody in a family, but it's a constant reminder that, you know, when racing does resume, uh, it's going to be great. It's not going to be good. We miss it. We need it. Yeah. You know, I never thought I'd, it's like, man, I'm looking for NBA. I was getting ready for the playoffs and for the NFL. But one thing that's, that's unique is, and I thought about this and I, I heard some of the, the commentary from Stephen A. Smith about, you know, those NBA players, they're going to appreciate those fans more than they ever have. And, and I think you can apply that to our sport. I know that we rely on those people that support, that come to the races. Yeah. And uh, and I think they can't wait. And likewise, I think they should appreciate the racers, the drivers that put their lives on the line, the teams that make the commitment to do it, and all the companies that support these teams. And, and it really should be a reminder that we should support those companies because now that we don't have it, it's like, man, we're, we're just itching to get it back. But uh, and, and it'll come. It'll come back soon yeah and uh you know both of us love this stuff uh a lot and i feel like uh when we get a crank and it is going to be you know weird to say but i feel like it is going to be kind of an emotional thing because this has been such an abrupt hard stop when we actually get it back um it is going to be you know that sunday morning first pair of top fuel cars like no you know no guarantees it might not be a man tier or something shed up there in the <laughs> shed up there in the booth because i think it's going to be uh it's going to be a thing but hey tony thanks for taking the time man uh good luck to you and the family uh, out there in indiana and uh hopefully the boys and their home education continues on its nice smooth path <laughs> <laughs> brian we'll catch up soon all right man see you Great conversation there with Tony Pedragon, and you know it's uh, interesting to get his perspective on things, and certainly with the history he has in the in the sport and that story he told about uh, about the kids from Columbine being at that race, those emotional touchstone moments you remember, the things that kind of sear themselves into your brain. We're gonna now, <clears throat> excuse me, gonna now talk to Brett Kepner, as I'm gonna call him up here, and we're gonna have a historical discussion about uh, 1918 of all things. 
It was back in 1918 when the Spanish flu came to the United States and things got uh, things got pretty weird in the world of auto racing. Indeed, they did. Hey, look at that, man! That was awesome, Brett Kepner. How you doing, <laughs> sir? Great to have you. That was like a, it was like that was like a like in the in the Olympics. That was like a baton handoff. It was seamless. <laughs> So I've I've been priming the uh, I've been priming our audience here about the fact that um, you know that you uh, are a historian and not just about drag racing but you spent a lot of time um, getting the history of just auto racing in general. You got a big passion for land speed racing and that goes back to the you know the 1900s or earlier, really when the automobile first came around. So first off, why did you ever get into studying 1918? And boy, are you glad you did it now. <laughs> uh. I think you know the answer to that question, and you just forgot it. I was actually researching drag racing when I came across this stuff. Really? Yeah, yeah. I was, uh, I was still digging around uh, to find out uh, the most difficult period of drag racing history to ascertain, that being the uh, 1900 to 1930 years, and uh, around the time that the virus. The Spanish influ- the Spanish flu uh, came up. Most it wasn't called drag racing back then. It was acceleration contests or acceleration races. Uh, most acceleration races and acceleration contests were held in Britain. Uh, realistically, the first drag racing was actually done in Britain, but we we as in the United States uh, had a, a major event one year within one year of that, 1903 in Britain and 1904 in the United States. So when you got into early World War I years, uh, motorsports in the United States was two very blatant differentiations. One was big time, big money, super spectacle at giant arenas, and the other was literally races in fields. <laughs> and uh, you know, by, by you know, ten guys with vehicles, you know, from from one little town, and the only people that knew about it were their friends and their wives. Uh, so it's it's very difficult to get anything other than the biggest of races uh, information from anything but the biggest of races. To answer your question, obviously, we know the Spanish flu. In hindsight, started around 1918. Started during the year 1918, and uh, at that time. Motorsports was enjoying a very flamboyant period with lots of big money races, especially because the the nation was on a high, having just come out of uh, World War One. Absolutely, uh, come out uh, winners. You know, there's big, big difference between coming out of a war and coming out of a war winner. Uh, <laughs> That's true. So nowhere near as elated in Germany. You know, they're, they're not, we're not having a yeah. Good the time mood, the mood was very dampened there. Yeah. <laughs> So it was kind of the beginning of, you know, a pretty prosperous and good time in the United States. And the one thing that the flu latched onto, and that's a weird way to say it, but I think you'll understand, is the fact that most big auto races uh, in the United States were held in conjunction with county fairs or state fairs or at big fair venues, big fair grounds. Right, because they had a horse racing track primarily, correct? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, there were there were literally probably you can count on both hands the number of purpose built racetracks 
in this country. Hmm. Uh, you know, the, the best known at the time was Indianapolis Motor Speedway, but uh, there were a handful of others. But, you know, the biggest, the biggest payoff in 1918 was at Sheepshead Bay in New York, which was it was just a horse track. Yeah, which would later become a two-mile board track, but that's a whole different kettle of fish. But it yeah, is, it the, is. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, so Sheepshead Bay was a, a horse racing track, and then my understanding about Sheepshead was it got, like, it was, like, the premier place for horse racing, which they started auto racing, and then Belmont, where they now run the Belmont Stakes, yep. kind of blew it into the weeds. Yep. Uh not not to derail your entire show immediately, but uh, <laughs> why why stop why stop now? <laughs> they they uh, used to drag race at uh, uh, what's the name of it? Roosevelt, the big horse track in New York. Yeah, yeah, drag race in the parking lot. Wow, I mean or, organized drag racing. You know, they, they had actual events and you know grandstands and stuff like that. But yeah, they used to race in the parking lot there. So anyway. Uh, the the point of this, of course, is to point out that the uh, the influenza had a wonderful reason to stop by most motorsports events because it could nick you know nail off five thousand people at a time. Yeah, it also made motorsports incredibly vulnerable because it was the, those fairs were events that people at the time couldn't pass up. Uh, I'll give you an example. The uh, a lot of people know me for my famous giant rabbits. Sure. Uh, of course, rabbits are uh, always a part of the uh, livestock shows at these uh, big far, uh, big uh, state fairs and stuff. And uh, people don't take their rabbits to the rabbit contest in hopes of getting a blue ribbon and saying, "Oh, what a great job, bunny!" You know, here's a carrot. <laughs> uh, pe- people people go to farm livestock shows to enter their animal in hopes of getting a blue ribbon so that they can get more money for breeding it. Right. Yeah. If it's a blue ribbon winner, it's the best of the best. And that's, that's the animals you want to breed. Sure. That makes sense. And, and I don't want to be uh, rude, but, or the other way, you know, the blue (laughs) ribbon winner, blue ribbon winner is sold on the spot for pork chops, you know, very quickly. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, but, for big money pork chops, because after all, you're eating a blue ribbon winner. <laughs> so obviously, the uh, the state fairs were not just social events; they were really the culmination of the year in any given farming community. Uh, but you know, it's if you want to look at it as a vampire, you know, coming out as the, the moon is rising, it's it's a perfect. For a perfect place for a, a deadly epidemic to go play. Man. So, you know, so we start to see in, across the country this thing, uh, the Spanish influenza starts to take root in different cities. Uh, responses varied at best. Uh, it's horrible in Philadelphia. It's better in other places. Um, Philadelphia runs some massive events that uh, – that caused their city to really run into some big problems. But I guess when did when did motorsports start to see um, the effects of it? How quickly did did those style events start getting locked down? Well, unlike what we're going through right now, it didn't happen in one fell swoop. Mainly because you know you have to remember in 1918, the only two forms of communication out there for uh, the populace were newspapers and telegraph. Yeah, 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 uh, yeah. No radio, no television, no other. No, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and then no radio is important because most people think of that era as 
uh, a, a radio connected society that didn't happen for another 10 years. Wow. So, uh, the, you know, literally the newspapers, which of course is where I do the vast majority of my archival work for, for that period. Uh, literally the newspapers are the only sources of information. So my point being, it didn't happen all in one seamless movement like it did yesterday. Yeah. Uh, not, not to date your show, but as it, like it did in uh, on March uh, 16th, <laughs> Right. So uh, as an example, St. Louis, where I am speaking from where I am speaking to you at the moment, uh, was uh, really at the forefront of containment of this thing in that most towns did not start implementing, uh, you know, limits on the number of people in the gathering, et cetera, et cetera, until the end of November, excuse me, the end of October. Uh, I think California made their move around October 11th because that's when they stopped racing. Uh, but uh, Missouri, St. Louis area in general, which incorporates Missouri and Illinois, uh, was October 1st. Wow. And that, okay. was a, that was a restriction on groups of 25 or larger. That's uh, that's that's a number we've heard familiar. That's a number we've all gotten familiar with over the last couple of days, which yeah, has continued exactly. to shrink. But that's kind of funny that it was twenty five then as well. Yeah, uh, you might be interested to know that the the first edict against gathering places included uh, bars, restaurants, and movie theaters because again, only form of entertainment that was out there other than. You know, vaudeville and burlesque was movie theater. That opera, excuse me, an opera was movie theaters, uh, and very similar to what we're seeing in racing, at least as of today, March eighteenth, twenty twenty, or seventeenth, whatever it is. Uh, some people followed it, and some people did. It yeah. was illegal, but we didn't see that many illegal activities occurring in October, November, December. It was January, February, March of 1919 when people were just fed up. Yeah, and I'm wondering, you know, and this is just my own, you know, and you, this is not a question. This is more of a, a rhetorical question. But when does when does that limit get reached in a modern society versus then when people I feel like in 1918, people were much more um, much more. Uh, attuned or in tune with um, occupying their time with other stuff, whereas today we live in a much different world. But so you're saying basically from uh, from mid October until January, things kind of went as everybody wanted. It, but after January, the wheels fell off the quarantine wagon, give or take. You know, it, it's a very difficult situation for any of us to get our head around uh, in any way, shape, or form. I sure as heck don't want to say yet, and I sure as heck want to preface this by saying let's hope we don't get to that point yeah but in october november and december of 1918 uh you know the bodies were hitting the floor oh big time to, to put it mildly and by the time again people got fed up uh, a huge percentage of the local population was gone uh, at the beginning of 1919 Remember that, like most viruses, this came in two waves. Uh, so, you know, it wasn't over yet. Uh, but th there also came a period uh, after the first of the year, 1919, where, yeah, you had to go to work. Yeah, sure. You know, everybody was out of food. Everybody was out of money. Everybody was, 
emotionally and mentally just destroyed from having to deal with this. Uh, it's also something that really needs to be remembered when we're looking back more than a century. We think things are so much different back then. Well, believe it or not, in the Spanish influenza, there was almost as much skepticism about its source, about its uh, legitimacy. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, as there is now. Uh, there were there were plenty of people who thought it was a, a conspiracy or it was a scam or it wasn't as bad as everybody made it out to be. Tragically, yeah. <laughs> in 1918 and 1919, yeah. they had proof. Yeah, they did. Um Proof that, like you said, proof that I hope we do not get here in, yeah. in, the, uh, in the form of 2020. Um, to get back towards the race car stuff, um, when, when in that 1919 time frame or in the 1919 time frame do we see some sort of racing recovery made? When do we see racing start again? Kind of when, is the, when do things start to happen again on racetracks? Well, most racing promoters in 1918, I uh, can use uh, one in particular in St. Louis, uh, as an example, uh, basically bowed to the government's wishes. Uh, once they put out that uh, 25 or less gathering uh, edict, uh, most promoters said, okay, we're, we're not going to push this. Um, however, at the time, motorsports was mostly major events, as I pointed out. Yeah. Uh, and in 1919, sporadic major events not necessarily in the biggest towns started popping up in the spring okay uh it was usually a situation where you had barney oldfield or ralph de palma yeah uh people who were literally superstars internationally known yeah exactly literally superstars that came and raced in your town that was big enough you know that was Shakira, you know. Oh, that was, was yeah. That was lock the front door, every, the closed business, yeah. and lock the front door. Everybody go watch this. One hundred. I mean, you know, and, is, and, is, is Grandma still alive? No. Okay, leave her there. We're going to see out the bomb. And he would, uh, and they would run those wacky events where they would race a horse, or they would race an airplane, or they would yep, race each other. I mean, it was, yep. a, it was a, it was a, like you said, it was they, were, it was match racing. It was a spectacle style thing. Sure. Yeah, and. Uh, uh, the interesting thing that uh, you know, because you're much more psychotic about motorsports history than the average guy, uh, Ralph De Palma and Barty Oldfield were actually film stars. Yes, Teddy Tetzlaff had a movie, uh, you know, where he played Teddy Tetzlaff, the, the famous race car driver. So, like I said, these were just monstrous celebrities. So it's kind of understandable that if people were going to leave the house for anything, it was going to be something like that. Uh, meanwhile, like I said, the second uh, second wave hit, uh, I think it was in May of 1919, and it knocked motorsports down again. It wasn't until 1920 that the smaller events, there, was, there still wasn't a weekly racing program in a, any town, really. Uh, but the the regularly scheduled once a month stuff at your local fairgrounds didn't show up uh, again until 1920. And once you know, once um, 
the cloud, the storm clouds passed, if what to say it in a, in a way, um, once the ball got rolling again, how quickly did motorsports recover or did it recover to the um, volume, to the size that it did before? And if it did, were there any keys in that? Interesting answer to that question. Uh, if you go back to the 1860s, every decade, the United States, mo- most of the world, but the United States in particular, picked on uh, picked up a different addiction. Okay. Uh, me- mechanical addiction. Okay. In uh, the, the 1850s, 1860s, it was ships, uh, big boats. In uh, 1870s, it was trains, yeah. fastest thing on the earth at the time. Uh, in the 1880s, it was bicycles. Sure. Global, global. Yeah, that was sport. a phenomenon. Bi- bicycle yeah. racing. Yes. Uh, high dollar deals. I mean, the, the guys, guys racing Barney Oldfield is an example. Racing uh, bicycles for five thousand dollars to win uh, in the 1880s. Just incredible stuff. And it's bizarre to think about, not to interrupt you, but just to, to put a cap on that, the amount of bicycle racers that became auto racers that yeah, it makes yeah. no sense at all. But, but that was a path, like you said, well, happened, no, it does. You know? It does. The reason that it happened is what I'm going through. Uh, bicycles in 1880 followed, of course, by the automobile in the 1890s and 1900s. The, the, the automobile kept the interest for quite a while, but, as World War One ended, what what was the next one? I'm going to say motorcycles. No, motorcycles were actually part of the bicycle and automobile okay. years because the motorcycles were originally just motorized bicycles. Um, as, no, what was it? Come on, as took World, over the country. Took over the country as World War One ends. You're saying? Yep. What Into the 1920s. It, oh, airplanes. Of course. Yeah, airplanes, definitely, yeah. Airplanes were, yeah. you know, it. Wright Brothers, uh, Glenn Curtis, yeah. all those guys, yeah. Now, don't get me wrong, you know, we, we'll use Glenn Curtis as an example. Glenn Curtis was the fastest man on a motorcycle before World War One started, and he became a war hero and, yeah. a, and a flyer. Uh, so, again, there's a crossover. Eddie Rickenbacker, you know, the famous race car driver. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, suddenly became an ace... Uh, uh, flyer in World War One. So, uh, to answer your question, motorsports recovered. Like I said, started recovering in the 1920s. Motorsports were big through the 1920s. Don't get me wrong, but the big thing that, uh, that literally created the barnstorming name—that's where the word comes from. Yeah, airplanes. Uh, airplane storming barns was the traveling air show. Yeah, and that's what breathed life into the, the culture again. Okay. Yeah, people came out to see the Flying Circus, right? The Wright brothers made untold Absolutely. millions on theirs. Uh, uh, Glenn Curtis and his group had their own. Yeah, that was the, the Flying Circus. Uh, there's a, a brilliant book, which uh, you probably read, but there's a book called Birdman that tells the story of Glenn Curtis and the Wright brothers and the horrendous relationship they had with each other. Um, Glenn Curtis, not so much for the Wright brothers, kind of lived in court for most of their lives. But um, it, it's a it's a great explanation of what – of what those events were and and how amazed people were to show up and watch these guys literally fly through barns, fly around barns, make loops in the air. Just uh, it was a traveling town to town air show, which seems impossible these days, but it was. Now I have to bring up one of your favorite spectator sports. Also occupied a very 
small but spectacular window in the 1920s. And that was the ultimate answer to the question, what the hell do we do with all these steam locomotives? Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They uh, staged uh, they staged locomotive crashes. And yep. um, the, the, the first one happened in the 1800s, but it got much more popular in the in the the 1900s as you mentioned but when, when the diesel locomotives overtook the steam engine yeah and the steam engines it was were literally a question of what do we do with these old steam engines yeah if you can if you can picture this uh viewers and or listeners you go to your county fair and they have built off a spur off of the main line they've built about a one one and a half mile length of track and they have taken two locomotives and put it on either end of that and they got the locomotives building up facing each other of course facing Facing each each other other. yeah and the locomotive engineer gets in that thing and he yanks the throttle all the way open and once it gets a little uh once it gets a little speed he dives off and the other guy does the same thing and you stand there and you paid your money and you watch two locomotives run full throttle into each other just just to see what happens (laughs) just just google it folks because it was it was every bit as spectacular as you can imagine and the first one was so spectacular, several people died because no one understood yeah. that when they crashed that the boilers are going to explode. So people were so yeah. close that they actually blew up. And, you know, the, the crowd control got better after the first one. But, I mean, there was one promoter, in, 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 and um, I forget, his Streeter was his last name, and he claims that over the course of his promotional career with wrecking locomotives that um, he wrecked about 180 of them. You know, he put on like 90 of these things over the course of his years. And, yeah, it was America's greatest spectator sport for a while. Uh, so through the 1920s, uh, motorsports recovered until, of course, 1929 when you know, yet another epidemic was thrown at the world, uh, the epidemic of not having any money. So, uh, but yeah, it's an interesting thing. I mean, what, what, knowing historically what you know about this period and then obviously living through it now, um, what parallels and or differences can you draw just kind of on what we're seeing right now? Well, nothing because we're not, we're not faced with the reality yet. Yeah. Right now we're asked to do things that don't seem to make much sense to us in a normal sense. Uh, but we don't know firsthand why we're doing them. Uh, let's, let's hope that we never do. Agree. Uh, so, so I don't see any parallels yet at all, except leaning on our knowledge of what we know from 1918. And, uh, you and I have both seen people here recently saying, Hey, uh, do you know anybody that had the H1N1 virus or right. had uh, this virus or had, uh, you know, the swine flu? It's interesting how nobody brings up AIDS. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a thing, too. I mean, it's, uh, yeah. Because we all know somebody who had AIDS. Yeah. And we, we all realize 100% that a lot of human beings died because of AIDS. Uh, so unfortunately, if we ever get to the fact to get to the point where there's a death toll in this, you have to remember the Spanish flu only had a death rate. Uh, he, he said cavalierly, it only had a death rate right. of, uh, about 0. 0.4 to 0.6%. But just so many people had it. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. It, it was four to six per thousand. Uh, but when you actually get to six zeros, you know, that's, that's a lot. Yeah. yeah the yeah. numbers start piling up. That's you know, a lot of thousands. Like yeah. Well, man, it's interesting. And I, I always think it's, uh, you know, I think it's, it's, 
educational to have these type of conversations because, you know, nothing in my mind, nothing we ever experience as people or as a society has not happened before. You know, we've, uh, human beings been around for as long as they have civilization to whatever degree, having been around as long as it has similar things have always happened. And I guess to your, to your point, overriding point, it's going to be, you know, 10 years from now, five years from now, when this, you get to have the retrospective that people have on what happened in 1918 to really look at what the situation actually was versus what we feel like it is right now when we're kind of in the middle of it so excellent way to put it you did well on that well man i appreciate you taking the time and uh giving us some historical insight it's been uh you know this is not the show i plan to make this week nor does anybody in the world of any sport making the show they plan to make this week and uh it's pretty interesting stuff i mean you know one other actually one other point i wanted to hit you up on um you know, we talk about and there's a lot of people speculating on what the the overall impact of this situation will be on drag strips, on racetracks, on on different facilities. One conversation we have had multiple times that I'd like to hear the words out of your own mouth on this show is the fact that the most disastrous period for drag racing and drag strips was not the 1990s, was not the 2000s, was not the 2010s. It was actually the 1970s when everybody thinks the sport was really booming. Am I wrong on that or am I right? Because I feel like that's the lesson I've gotten from you. Everything was really booming. And then in 1970, no, I'm saying in the 1970s, everything was booming. Uh, The Vietnam War kept the the machine well-oiled and cranking. And, uh, you know, that's when this country has always prospered prospered, uh, most was during periods of war. Sure. And uh, in 1973, the oil-producing countries got together and said, yeah, let's jack with everything. And uh, the first oil embargo uh, in 1973 locked up the country. And uh, it was a horrible hit. Uh, Everybody usually refers to the the 1973-1974 gas crisis, quote-unquote, uh, as, you know, long lines of the gas pumps and people paying three times the normal amount of gas. Well, that, that wasn't it. The, the whole economy went south. Yeah. And it didn't recover. Uh, it was struggling to recover uh, through 1974, I'm sorry, through 1975, 6, and 7. And then the second whammy hit, and that was the second oil embargo. And that's what destroyed everything. Yeah. And that caused that caused racetracks literally across the country to shutter because they had no customers. Nobody could afford to get to them, and people weren't showing up anymore. Be honest, uh, to be honest, the, as as a person who was actually involved in drag racing at that time, I'm getting older and older, and I can pull this old guy stuff out uh, more and more <laughs> often. Uh, as a, as a person involved in drag racing back then, there was just a general bad vibe. You know, everybody was sick of it. They knew that the, all the changes that were happening were completely out of their control. They knew it was, uh, you know, the Saudis versus the world just playing chess games, and we were the ones that paid for it. And like I said, the drag strips that didn't go under in seventy by the end of seventy four definitely went under in nineteen seventy eight. Yeah, and, I, and I'll tell you. This might make some of this real or more palpable to uh, younger listeners uh, of your show. Everybody bitches about gas prices when they go up, and I understand the phenomenon, uh, 
and accept it with a grain of salt. But I don't complain about gas, and I will not complain about gas prices, A, because it's totally outside of my control, but B, B I will not complain until it gets above $6.11 a gallon. The reason is, in 1980, I sat in a very small line in Cleveland, Ohio, about three cars worth of a line, for the honor of paying $2.18. Wow. To put gasoline in my 1970 Fury 2. Oh, God. That was was not the car to be driving then either. (laughs) No, no. Single four barrel 383, known for its 50 miles per gallon, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, in a 4,400-pound car. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, so that converts to a modern price of $6.11 per gallon. So I've paid 6 bucks before, so anything below that is <laughs> You're a ahead deal. money. <laughs> Man, it's unbelievable. Uh, yeah, it uh, it really is interesting. I hope we get back to it uh, you know, sooner rather than later. And, again, the intention for NHRA is to get going in Houston. Fingers crossed, you know, and – Obviously, with all the other stuff that's been going on, who knows uh, if that's going to come off or not, but that's what uh, that's what everybody's trying to do. Hey, man, I appreciate you taking the time to chat and uh, certainly to give us some insight that we wouldn't have gotten otherwise. And um, I think people will be interested in this only for the fact that it is a topic that not a lot of people are brought up or conversed about, and it's something that did happen historically, does have historical precedent, and uh, – Certainly interesting to learn more about it. What uh, What's your next uh, research topic du jour? Because I might try to avoid whatever that is. <laughs> no, no kidding. I think the next couple of months, whether this thing you know blows over by June or it doesn't, the next couple of months are going to be interesting because there will be racing going on. Well, yeah, in Pennsylvania, yeah. the governor there said that they can run dirt track races. Right. Did you see that? Well, he, he didn't come out and say, hey, by the way, you can run dirt track races. He said, we can't force you to not run dirt races. Gotcha. Big difference in yeah, that, that announcement. That is true. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, the, yes, using Pennsylvania as an example, there will be racing going on. I'm incredibly curious to see, A, if anybody shows up. Yeah. And, B, if it's sustainable. If it's sustainable, it's going to be pretty weird. Well, it's going to be pretty weird, and, and the cascade effect of it is going to be very immediate, where it's, it's you know, for better or worse, I think if if uh, if you see it happen in, in Pennsylvania and you see that sustained, people are going to look around and go, well, why aren't we doing this here, there, exactly. and everywhere? You yeah, know, that's, so. that's, that's my point. Yeah. It's, it's going to be very interesting to watch. So. Just like everything else that's going to happen in the next 30 seconds, we have no idea what's going to happen. So uh, we'll sit back and watch that. As a wise man once said, aren't we so fortunate to live in such interesting times? <laughs> Brett Kepner, thank you so much for coming on the NHRA Insider Podcast. And I am going to let you go back to uh, living your life there in St. Louis and hoping you don't have to pay 6 bucks a gallon for gas. Thanks so much, man. We'll, we'll talk soon. Thanks. Yes, sir. So two conversations, very different conversations, two of the most wide-ranging conversations we'll ever have on this podcast, I'm sure probably until next week. I don't plan on not making these podcasts over the course of our time off. We'll probably get back to some more NHRA actual-centric topics next week, especially because we understand there's going to be news coming almost on a daily basis. Please make sure you tune in to NHRA.com, NHRA.tv. If you have the subscription, get it. If you don't, we're loading loads of content on a .tv over this period. Vintage races, some cool studio shows you've not seen before. 
Also, make sure you follow NHRA's YouTube page, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and also keep up with the NHRA Insider Podcast. Thanks so much for listening, and thanks so much for those of you that are watching on video for the first time ever. This has been videotaped. I feel like I'm at a deposition, and I've given all the wrong answers. We'll see you next time in the NHRA Insider Podcast. Listen up for all the drag racing news and information on all the NHRA's social and media channels. We'll keep you up to date on everything that's going on with the schedule and everything that's to come over the next couple of weeks. Thanks for listening. See you next time.